Okay, so death sentence for this week. Uh, we have Natasha Leonard from The Intercept and the new book out on Verso. We're continuing our Verso Books apology tour. We're so sorry about what happened with Socialist Manifesto. They're totally out of my hands. I did not agree with any of those things I agreed with. And, you know, just so sorry. So we're covering just masses of Verso books in the next few weeks. Uh, we did James Bridal last week, and we're going to have um, uh, Aaron Bastani uh, in a couple of weeks from now. So, yeah, the, the Verso Apology Tour 2019 continues apace. And, um, yeah, this is one of the free episodes, so if you like what you're hearing, then you can get kind of more of it, only not by going to uh, patreon.com forward slash death sentence and uh, give us money and then hear more of me and Langdon who isn't here he's um he's he's recovering he swallowed a lot of diesel fuel in an attempt to turn himself into a train in order to have sex with a lady train at quote from his last text message to me we'll wish him a speedy recovery um so Natasha is as I mentioned a writer for The Intercept which is one of the like four or five good publications that remains. Um, and she's got a new one on Verso Books called Being Numerous. A, uh, is it a guide to a non-fascist life? Or essays on essays a non-fascist on. life? Essays on. I wouldn't deign to offer a guide to anything. <laughs> good. Okay, good. Yeah, so, yeah, it's... I was kind of, like, contextualizing it in my head as I read it as kind of like a, a greatest hits yeah i think that i think that makes sense so it's it is an essay collection so most of it has already been published um and some of it is new and some essays are sort of radically revised um but even the ones that were pre-published a number of them were in um magazines or journals or platforms that don't get a lot of eyeballs like the lovely new inquiry or real life magazine um so it's kind of nice to put them put them together and also like see a coherence in work that I've done over the last few years that even even predates Trump while talking about fascism so cool yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk about that coherence in a minute because um, one of the cool things it does is it's not exactly like laser focused on what is fascism here are a bunch of essays about it there is for example an essay on ghosts mm-hmm there's a really, really awesome essay, um, essay on Wittgenstein and ghosts, which is like, really just hits my sweet spots there. Ah, good. So, yeah, I <laughs> like that one a lot. And, um, like, I've been talking about ghosts a weird amount lately, so it was like a, another cool little synchronicity. Um, not that I believe in that thing, of course. Well, yeah. I mean, it's about modes of believing, right? That's what... So, yeah, so the, as you say, it's a, there's... For a book that has the word like non-fascist in the title, I think a lot of people are going to maybe pick it up and be like, oh, cool, this is a book about Antifa. Mm. Um, And the kind of first extended essay, the first chapter, is directly about anti-fascism in terms of Antifa tactics, you know, violent uh, confrontations, punching neo-Nazis like Richard Spencer. And I give a kind of philosophical and historical defense of that kind of 
that kind of activism and why it actually makes sense if we have a good understanding of fascism and what drives that. But the other essays, you know, the word fascism doesn't really come up, but um, I'm interested in the kind of overdetermined or hierarchically determined ways the world is organized or gets to be organized and categorized and the maintenance of various power structures that I think we might want to think about under capitalism as micro-fascistic and leaving, laying the groundwork for kind of more formal spaces of fascism. And that's not like a new idea. Um, in the 30s, Wilhelm Reich was talking about um, the kind of mass psychology of day-to-day perverted desires for power and domination that feed into fascistic tendencies, fascistic habits. Hmm. And, you know, Bertolt Brecht, lovely Bertie, talked about, you know, there's no justification to, to go on about fascism and the problems with fascism unless you're willing to address the capitalism that brings it forth. Hmm. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that this spread of essays reminds people that we don't have to just have this, oh my God, is fascism coming back 1930s Europe? Um, just because we see a kind of authoritarian set of figures. And so my ghost is um, a kind of urge to think about how we have regimes of belief and the openings therein and the kind of demand for ethics, not just pure science, um, when we think about what we allow to exist in our universes and in our imaginings. So that's my my anti-fascist ghost. Cool. And yeah, as you point out elsewhere in a, I think it was an interview with New Statesman, maybe, um, the idea of ontology, just what is allowed to be, is very, very key in thinking about fascism. You know, certain right. people are not allowed to be as people. Right. And like the ways in which people are allowed to be kind of persons, person, and the terrains of choices that get to exist. Um, and it was it was for the nation, not the New Statesman, not the. Yeah. Um, I knew it had an N. I, yeah, I no, it did. That. I mean, and actually, like, you know, I, I'm a kind of, the only reason I like, I'm not, I don't really carry the weight, except that I'm not, I live in America, so I don't really read the New Statesman, <laughs> but have not been delighted to hear about the amount of transphobia. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, uh... Seems to have been allowed on that place. And I, I haven't seen that at the nations, happily. Um, so mm, yeah, just, just pointing that out. Um, that but that yeah, is all I, of Britain now. The, like, I, I was reading something uh, just uh, literally seconds ago in The Guardian, which like it wasn't technically transphobic. It kind of defended someone else being transphobic, but in a very centrist, liberal way. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's gone really odd here. But um, yeah. so... Moving back to, let's go back to the front cover of this book. Let's judge this book by its cover. So it's essays on a non-fascist life. So Mm -hmm. I guess the most obvious question is, how are you defining fascism in the terms of this book? Right. So um, as I kind of lay out in both the introduction and the first essay, um, I use quite a capacious um, understanding of fascism. So you know, with the rise of Trump and, you know, echoed with the Brexit Brexit vote, um, there was a huge amount of both conservative and liberal commentary that seemed like obsessed with deciding in some sort of determined, 
definite way whether Trump was a fascist or not. Mm. And it had oh, this yeah. very limited, you know, whether people, whether the given commentator decided yes or decided no, the understanding of fascism throughout and the way fascism was being used, I felt was really, really reductive and seemed to ignore decades of re-theorizing fascism and only seemed to talk about it as that which is constituted in a specific type of state regime. And sure, yeah, that is... in the 30s. Exactly. And it's this idea that, oh, if Trump is again a fascist or if we're seeing a return of fascism, its progress has taken a kind of wrong turn and brought us back to the early 20th century Europe. And, um, you know, that is one definition of fascism. But I think it's a kind of it's a limited one and it's reductive. So I'm more interested in looking at fascism as a set of as Wilhelm Reich and later um, the philosopher and psychoanalyst duo uh, Jill Deleuze and Felix Guattari talked about it as these kind of sets of perverted desires around power, domination, creating the other, and the way these fuel into nationalist projects, patriarchal projects. Um, but looking at the point of intervention earlier on, kind of not waiting for it to be a state regime. And for those of us who've been organizing on the left and part of anti-racist activism, part of uh, movements like Occupy Wall Street, uh, in support of um, uprisings like we saw for black life in Baltimore and Ferguson, there hasn't been this fear of using the word fascist when you see fascistic activities and assemblages. you know as part of the kind of far left in the US, we've been calling cops fascists without much problem for a very long time. And then we should. Suddenly, right, as we should. And it doesn't mean, and so I think I don't, I understand that there's this worry that if you bandy a term around too much, it loses meaning. But I don't think it, the, the kind of far left usage of it has made it any less meaningful or powerful. Um, so I'm not against accuracy, but I'm more interested in looking at fascism um, as a kind of active process. Like I'm interested in fascisting, like the gerund verb, because then we can start to talk about anti-fascisting as a set of tactics and practices that make the fueling, fostering and enabling of these fascistic desires as intolerable as possible. And if you have that kind of framework, then something like Antifa confrontation makes a lot more sense because it understands that fascism isn't, or at least isn't only, some formalized political ideology that has its own reasoning. It is a set of violent desires given space to grow and collectively grow um, when given a platform either online or at universities or in um, town squares around Confederate monuments. Um, and if you understand that that kind of desire and that kind of habit, by which I mean no less than how you live your life habit, um, it's not always reasoned into. And racism is not um, the racism that undergirds so much of it and the white supremacy that undergirds too much of it, it's not because someone sat around and made a good argument. Hmm. It's a kind of a priori. And I think, um, therefore, the interventions that presume you can 
reason someone out of it or that civil debate and some mythic capital T truth will win out are um, kind of philosophically inadequate um, and empirically have proven kind of lacking. So I was interested in using a, a kind of idea of fascism and therefore anti-fascism that I felt it was sort of super lacking in most liberal discourse um, and therefore the liberal discourse was not providing good enough weapons discursively mm. and uh, on the ground. Um, so yeah, and and where Wittgenstein comes into it, so he's my, my fave philosopher, mm -hmm. um, yep. is that, um, and actually this also was not my, my idea afresh, uh, in uh, Umberto Eco wrote an essay in the 90s um, about uh, fascism and how... Uh, fascism, yeah. Yeah, uh, fascism and how Wittgenstein's family resemblance concept of naming is perhaps the most useful way to understand, A, like most concepts, um, but certainly fascism in that you can think of this Venn diagram kind of of different attributes like authoritarianism, newspeak, racism, nationalism, patriarchy. And you don't have to have every single one of them in play to be like, yes, this is fascism and everything else. You can't call it that and the term doesn't apply. It can be a kind of movable assemblage of all these different attributes. Sometimes one will be missing, but it still counts as fascism and we can still meaningfully name something fascism and then the kind of I expand that idea a little bit to say you know a lot of people will be like you know where do you draw the line like you're you know you want to punch neo-nazis you want to punch identity Europa but what about you know a twerp in a MAGA hat um or just a normal Trump voter and you know that's a stupid question partly because you just don't see it happening like it's unempirical like Antifa activists and people who take up those tactics are usually pretty pretty careful and pretty resolute that the person they're willing to take on physically um, or docs has actually been pretty avowed uh, extreme far right and uh, white supremacist. Um, but the question of where do you draw the line? I can't give you an answer to that because that's the nature of the concept of fascism. It's not necessarily bounded and it is somewhat movable, but that's true of loads of concepts. Like, that's true of the concept game. I can't give you a def, and this was Wittgenstein's point, I can't give you a definition of the term game that will necessarily apply to everything we usefully and meaningfully call game. We have to decide as we go, collectively. That's how meaning-making works. So it's about, which then, in, like, demands ethics, right? It's an ethical communal question, what we do and don't call fascism. But it's certainly not a bounded, foreclosed and finished question. Hmm. Yeah. And a uh, fun little fact for people at home, Wittgenstein went to school with Adolf Hitler. So he should... Uh... In Austria, yeah. <laughs> so... Oh, I'm just checking the time. Okay, so we're going to leave those thoughts there for a while to, to switch over to, to play some music. Cool. And it's... Um, I've, I've chosen a very thematically appropriate song here. So um, long-term listeners will know that the band Neckbeard Death Camp won the show a while back last year uh, because their album uh, 
white nationalism is for basement dwelling losers was uh got very big uh they've got a second album out really soon this one is called so much for the tolerant left the front cover has uh, richard spencer getting a wedgie so you know really thematically appropriate here uh we're going to play the song bricks out for harambe because memes i guess and um (laughs) Yeah, it's four minutes. It sounds like absolute garbage. It sounds like it was recorded on the bottom of a well that's also that was built inside a cave. Uh, it, it's that good. It's great. And if you don't understand why bad music is good, then don't listen to this show anymore, please. <laughs> and um, yeah, so here's Bricks Out for Rambe off uh, So Much for a Tolerant Left by Neckbeard Death Camp.
So that was uh, Netbeard Death Camp, those good, good boys who, for some strange reason, wore balaclavas when I was interviewing them on this podcast. No idea why. It's an audio mm. medium. Can't see you. We, we, I couldn't dox you on here. <laughs> Wouldn't want to, but, you know, I, I'm glad that that committed to their bit. Like, we need more people that committed to, like, be hot and sweaty during interviews. Yeah. So... We're still on with Natasha Leonard, uh, intercept writer, writer of books, bon vivant, expat British person living in Brooklyn. Yeah. Cool. Got, yeah. There's all your identities. That's and, it. That's, yeah. you, that's it's covered. That's yeah. It. yeah. I was, I was um, trying to be be true to the spirit of uh, Deleuze and uh, Guattari by you know, talking about you in terms of multiple intersecting identities and... Uh, you know, de-individualizing and, and so forth. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, I just de-subjectified as you were saying it. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, that's good stuff. I, I usually, you know, usually a few bong hits in before I completely de-subjectivize for the evening. Mm. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was, as you mentioned, the anti-Oedipus and um, Foucault's introduction to that book, where he kind of, makes everything in the book a lot easier than the book itself because that book itself is hard as fuck yep that's and you know sorry i just like side point that what like annoys me a lot and i think the authors themselves said it but then it gets kind of repeated or maybe this is just a myth but the idea that you can just open that book at any point and have this like you know schizoanalysis journey through the pages i'm like no you can't it's really dense (laughs) and really hard and really obscure and actually probably do- could mean a number of things at once in a in a way that could be picked up by you know some, some quite dangerous um politics but i think there's a lot of like brilliance in it and it's a lovely book mm, yeah although very difficult to like read together like i read it first in a reading group i would have oh, never Jesus. got through it on my own yeah, that's like yeah a but i would have Finland's never got through it on my own reading group that would not work <laughs> you need to be alone uh, and drunk to read that book but, uh, I mean, we were drunk for sure. Oh, good. Yeah. Is that the same? Um, uh, is it an anti-state communist reading group you mentioned in the book? Yes, it was the the 2010 to 11 anti-state communist reading group, which awesome. was kind of, I mean, it, like we knew the name was a bit bombastic, right? It was just like some friends sitting around reading, um, and it was a kind of precursor, a, a left before Occupy, but very much led into the kind of more more anarcho-radical aspects of Occupy. Hmm. The, the, at the time, was sometimes a little little too blustering, but I was young and it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask about Occupy, because um, in a few weeks we're going to be talking about a book on the show called uh, Change the World Without Taking Power by John Holloway, which mm. is supposed to be, I don't know if you've, it, it's built. I, like, I don't know about. Oh, it was. It's like builders. This book inspired Occupy, but uh, I guess not. <laughs> um, good job there, no, Mark. But, guys. I mean, but uh, yeah, oh no, but maybe it did because that's the thing. Like it was, you know, a lot of people came to the Occupy moment from very different. I mean, there's a lot of shared crossover desires to kind of take a stand against capitalism, take up space, follow the lead of the square movements. Um, in Europe that, that preceded it. Um, but, you know, the, like people have different mythologies and stories around it. It's like, you know, the idea that ad busters 
called it into being as opposed to kind mm. of yeah, I've heard that a lot. arbitrarily because they arbitrarily set the date in a way <laughs> but then it took kind of lots of organizing in the kind of preceding months and weeks to actually make it a meaningful thing it's not like adbusters was like september the 11th or was it no 17th sorry that's diff- yeah. different september D- different diff- september different, 11th yeah diff- diff- different september <laughs> um so, so i think it was se- september 17th it was like you know descend on wall street and then everyone kind of immediately out of nowhere because adbusters which no one <laughs> listens to said it like it was always, like you know in this and so i'm sure there was a whole set of literatures and politics and whatnot that that took people there for different reasons um and and yeah and it was I think it was it's funny because I think there's a there's a kind of embarrassment around it these days because mm. a lot of oh, it yeah, was def- messy big time yeah and I know and in England I you know I wasn't I was only in the New York one that that did have okay you know a, a serious impact mm. and the now and everyone's always like oh it, it changed the discourse now we have a discourse of inequality and capitalism and i but i think it did more than that in terms of politicizing people and generating spaces of new political desires and how to organize and and showing people the like real difficulty in that kind of direct democracy and mm. you know the strengths and limits of it and i think um you know, it's, I can sometimes feel a bit like, oh, Occupy, it was a bit nuts, wasn't it? But I, I think I sometimes, that's me falling into um, a popular narrative that I don't think is actually fair, but I do think we need to kind of critique, you know, I like the fact that racial justice was not put front and centre is like, there's no excuse for that, even though there were kind of caucuses within the broader movement specifically dedicated to racial justice the whole thing should have put racial justice front and center um at the time i was deeply disgusted by any idea that we would be involved in um any sort of electoral projects and i am not so anti that now like i believe we need lots of illiberal interventions as well um, but like the complete ignoring of liberal institutions, um, I mean, it, it, you lose opportunities to get some stuff done. Like I'm very pleased we've got people like AOC and Ilan Omar and in New York state, people like Julia Salazar, like, you know, democratic socialists pushing an agenda at an electoral level. I'm like, I'm down with that. Even though I, even though I'm like, no, we still need to like take up space seize your houses abolish the family abolish yeah. prisons abolish 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 hmm. um yeah i think I've, I, I've kind of gone I've, I've kind of gone the same route you know i i was i wasn't i would never claim to have been in occupy uh london at saint i think of saint peter's but i i visited there a little bit and mm-hmm. i i've gone down the same path you know i, I was like hardcore anarchist at the time fuck everything to, even to do with the state and, you know, at, at this point, I can see how, like, you know, Bernie, Jeremy Corbyn over here, and yeah. a few people around the world that could be useful to getting us into that place. And I, I'm starting to wonder if it's just like, am I just getting old? Is that yeah, it? I wondered that too, but I actually don't, I don't think, like, I am getting old. <laughs> um, and I am, but I also, um, I'm also just more interested in, a kind of like imminent diversity of tactics um and i think 
I think you also, you know, you you need you need anarchist lenses and interventions when you know I'm I wouldn't be interested in putting every single aspect of leftist energy into you know electing democratic socialists I think we would deeply shoot ourselves in the foot and forego so much important struggle that has nothing to do with that if all our energies are put into you know, getting a President Sanders. Of course, he's not a revolutionary. Mm, yeah. um, he's an, like, like Corbyn, the septuagenarian elder statesman. But um, yeah, I, you know, 21 year old me being like, oh, I would never vote. Like I did a write-in vote for Corbyn. Um, Same. And yeah, and I'm just like, okay, like even if, even if in the most radical posturing around it or positioning around it it's like oh because i want to choose a better enemy like if the state is always going to be in a a sort of problem force of interlocution and navigation i'd rather have a a better one but actually i also just think we need you know we need medicare for all we need Mm. free university um you know in england you need to have the sort of policy positions that highly tax the rich and try and undo some of the most violent austerity measures like these need these won't happen if we just take over squares and i think and i get a bit tired of even if i think we do need some revolutionary positions i don't need to hear some manichaeus talk about like the rev when <laughs> clearly, uh, like, i cringe like, so hard when i hear that said unironically yeah and i'm like okay like it's one thing to say that incrementalism and reform is insufficient it's a different thing to be like well you know we were able to stop a bridge functioning for an hour so bring on the rev um but yeah i don't so i think it's more than just being a boring old person because also (laughs) when we were when occupy was happening um it was a moment it was a political moment where you know we hadn't we hadn't come of age with a viable political like party left at all um so the idea of so the idea of kind of organizing ourselves around like the neoliberal blairite style you know reagan that's right left uh at a moment of you know post-iraq war or during iraq war but we had come of age at the inception of that like gross of course we weren't going to do that and at the same time insurgent mainstream politics was in the u.s it was like the tea party Mm. um and I think, you know, it speaks to, of like, it, I get really annoyed when elder libs and conservatives are like, well, you know, you kids in Occupy, why weren't you organizing in state houses? Why didn't you get involved there and stop the rise of the kind of far right Republicans in the Tea Party? Why weren't you doing the same? I'm like, well, I'm sorry, there was a generational gap there. Whereas like, who could we have done the same with? Which 40 to 50 year old liberal involved in mainstream politics were we going to get behind so i think it's only feasible now that we have some interest in and like a different sort of electoral politics you've got at least in america sort of new new voices from an actual left and like new young people yeah and i feel like in england there needs to be some more like youngs (laughs) some more some more youngs to get behind but i also don't pay enough attention to my homeland. Um, Nor should you. It's a very silly place. 
silly little thing. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, we're mostly to discourses about milkshakes in the last few weeks. It's gone really stupid. Um, so one of the things you said earlier, which might confuse some people who listen to the show, I'm hoping not too many, was uh, about being illiberal. Right. And I'm sure if I was speaking to, I don't know, my, my parents or my colleagues at work and I could describe myself or something I wanted to do as illiberal, they would consider me to be a conservative because we... Right, they think of it to Orban or whatever. Exactly, yeah. Because we we now have, for the majority of people in the world, the politics is the left, which is liberal, and the right, which is conservative. And it, it's very hard to uh, criticise liberals and have the majority of people in the world understand that you can do it in a way that doesn't mean you're doing it from a rightward position. You can criticise liberalism from the left. And um, so do, do you want to maybe just expand upon that? The, yeah. What, it, what I mean, makes something of... illiberal but still left? Um, I suppose when I when I use illiberal, um, I mean that, you know, it's, it's a set of political interventions that might not fall under the remit of institutions of liberal democracy or what purport to be institutions of liberal democracy. So, you know, a riot or an uprising, a riotous protest in response to a murderous police shooting of young black people, that is an illiberal intervention. It might, in its activity and the kind of conversations and necessary threats to the status quo it can bring up and that riots have, brought up in the past um they can be in the they can be in the mission of social justice and racial justice that liberals claim is you know a liberal tenant like a tenant of liberal democracy but i think um these sort of illiberal interventions recognize that sometimes the formation and the, the constant kind of almost paradoxical pairing of liberalism and democracy won't necessarily deliver us the sort of equality and egalitarianism and full liberation and social justice that we want. So it's not saying, as I might have said, you know, a number of years ago, baby out with the bathwater, no liberal institutions, they've all got to go overnight. I think it's more of an understanding that an illiberal stance and a welcoming or an enabling of illiberal interventions and that, you know, liberal democracy does not defend the punching of Nazis um, Mm. are necessary in the struggle for justice. And this was definitely understood by the, you know, the the, uh, hero, alleged hero of, of today's liberals, Martin Luther King. He, in his letter from Birmingham, specifically decried the the moderate who the white moderate who was more invested in order than justice and you know claimed to want the same outcome of both the kind of non nonviolent civil disobedient act, obedient civil rights activist and the more ra- radical militant activists um but decried the means of achieving those goals even when those were um, you know, the actions taken up by non-violent, you know, non-violent protesters. So I think it's it's this sort of irony that um, the kind of characters who get canonised by liberals today, I dare say, 
those very liberals would have decried them as too radical and outside of the protected boundaries of liberal activity um, at the time. Mm. So, yeah, um, indeed. And I also think the, um, the way in which, the way in which, yes, if someone says illiberal, it gets presumed that they mean right-wing populist. That speaks to how much, how much has been erased in, in discourse and silenced in discourse and silenced in historic tellings of, of leftism and the way in which when liberals hear illiberal or hear socialist, you know, a generation before us just panics and says Stalinism. Mm. Um, so the, the challenge to whether like liberal democracy is the ideal form of governance um, has only kind of become more utterable with a generation that doesn't seem to have a paranoid reaction to the word socialism. Yeah. So kind of to, to cap off with a big question, like the biggest question, really. Mm. How does one live a non-fascist life? Like, what what could I do this week to be less fashy than I am? Which is totally fashy, by the way. Totally fashy. Get a different haircut. No, I don't know. Um, uh, it, it is. It's kind of very close to Richard Spencer right now. <laughs> it, and I, I'm just looking at my bookshelves, and there's a lot of books about Hitler here. Like, way too many. Uh, well, but I'm, I'm, that Richard I'm, Spencer haircut was, like, the only haircut a, a guy could get for about 10 years. So uh, I mean, not it's not fault. a bad, it's not a bad haircut. It, you know, reclaim the haircut. Um, but I think um, so. Obviously, given that it, it, these are kind of complicated sets of things, uh, I can't give you a like twelve rules for non-fascist life. I would never try and like Jordan Peterson this shit. Um, but I think if we're going to embrace or at least engage with a definition of fascism that understands it as a kind of continuance of problematic power structures and hierarchies under capitalism and within capitalism, I think being cautious of those, right? Like which ways are you falling into traps of careerism, like uh, patriarchy, racism, where, which kind of, you know, for want of a better term, like check your privilege, but also what ways are you fighting those problems and not just thinking about neo-nazis coming back or ukip um and so or like the edl whatever so i think those ways of kind of um looking at those kind of tendencies and habits in daily life but i don't think it's something just because it might reside in all of us in a way under capitalism that doesn't mean we all are necessarily going to become neo-nazis of course we don't nor does it mean that um this is all just like an individual project that if you killed the cop inside your head, then all the kind of proto-fascists and those tendencies would be um, destroyed. Like this is about community and generating better sets of political desires and political habits that replace um, the kind of appeal and collective desirousness of certain fascist modes so you know the left having better options and demanding better i think is is in itself non-fascist um and you know being with and for each other in a in a meaningful way um is all kind of thinking of it as like non-fascist practice and habit i think is good it's not like cool you did the 10 things now you're now you're 
kind of you've excised the fascism in you like it doesn't it doesn't work that way yeah you know like take a um you know adorno's um f scale test every few weeks just to check your fascism levels and you're like, make, oh, make cool, sure they're going down um and nor do you like punch yourself in the face like you might want to punch richard spencer you know <laughs> there are different interventions and i also think not you know not throwing actual anti-fat activists under the bus if you happen to not agree with their tactics is important too. So don't mm. no one listeners don't do that yeah that's bad there's i've just started using my fitness pal and there should be a my fashionism pal like my fa- every <laughs> every day you should just um like take a few tests do your f scales and make sure it's going downwards so make sure you're, you're getting progressively less fashy yeah, I love the idea of like quantify your fascism. Yeah, that's why we have an F scale. Adorno, very smart guy. He he's probably worked it out with his like fifteen questions or whatever. So we should just like do that every day. Make sure it's always trending downwards. If one of your comrades, you see a spike, you know, maybe jump them in the parking lot, <laughs> beat them down. Make sure they're not they're they're going down the next day. You know, it's... is this like a call for app developers to get get on board? Yeah, app developers are true comrades, and they'll come to our aid. <laughs> they always have. Um, yeah. Oh, that yeah. was another another little thing um, you mentioned. The um, kind of going back a little to last week's episode, we we're talking to your Verso colleague um, James Bridal about tech in general. You, mm-hmm. you mentioned in one of the last pieces in the book, uh, the title essay being numerous. Mm-hmm about communizing data and yeah you know, i'm all for like big solutions and stuff here so what was um what's the idea behind communizing our data well i mean it, it's somewhat utopian obviously because taking on kind of silicon valley and like corporate nexus of data control both in kind of ownership of data and means of production through which we are produced as data, data kind of subjects, not data humans, um, is is really hard and really complicated. And um, like any overthrowing huge power structure and seizing the means of production. Um, but there's a theorist who is also a great human called Ben Tarnoff, who has written um, in, has written to propose the idea of nationalizing data treating it as a kind of public good um in which we all have a kind of stake stock and control um i mean obviously the the fear there is like oh but does that just mean kind of giving the government more um top-down control it's like well they already have it you know ice works with amazon um so ice being the um horrible immigrant Yep, yeah, I well think the horrible deportation. Yeah, I well aware of them uh, on the show. We've called for their yeah. deaths many, many a time. Oh, good. Yes, abolish indeed. Um, so I think uh, I don't have a kind of passage as to how that's to be done, um, but I think we need to not only think of resistance to corporate government surveillance and all the kind of dangers and violences they're in only in terms of transparency and privacy that seems to be like how that debate has been framed like oh if you're going to resist it's about privacy protections and those are important but none of those deal with the kind of question we have to ask if we're about challenging the capitalist system through which these kind of modes of control um run is we have to start talking about 
production and who controls the means of it. Um, so, and property, right? So these these are both questions that I don't think often get um, deployed when thinking of solutions to mass surveillance. Um, and I don't have a, an answer to how that's done. And I feel like there are wiser people than me to do that. But I kind of want to frame the idea of resistance in a way that gives credit to the, that this is a this is a capitalist problem. Hmm. Yeah. So, where are you? What are you doing next? Oh, what's what's coming up next for you? What's coming up next? Um, well, I've, I've got a column at the Intercept that's still going. I do two of those a month. Um, so I'll keep doing that and then some freelancey essays and then I teach at the new school which is a university in New York so that's all how I'm going to keep the lights on hopefully and then um, I'm actually going to be in Berlin all summer um, nice because I go there to to just relax a bit but I don't in terms of um, what is kind of the what seems like the immediate sort of urgent challenges in sort of uh political advocacy and activism. Um, Chelsea Manning is, is reincarcerated mm. yep. for her righteous resistance to grand juries. And so support for her is high on um, my priority. One of her, her lawyer in this instance is one of my best friends. So support for that is crucial. Um, and actually, if you guys, I don't have the address in my head, but if you Google Chelsea Manning, um, support fund you can you can give to that mm-hmm. um, put in the show think, notes yeah that would be great I can send you the link um, and then um, obviously there are the kind of violent abortion laws in the mm-hmm. US now um, very frightening so kind of thinking about ways to support the groups that do continue and have had to for so many years um, support support primarily poor black and brown women in in the fight for autonomy there um so those are the things i think seem very urgent and then obviously not being too overwhelmed as if the only question in politics is who is going to be president because if you look at the most media that seems like that's all there is um so so that Mm -hmm. what about you (laughs) um yeah also not giving a flying crap about the american election because then i'll go insane it yes. it's literally the most important thing in the world and if i think about it for any more than a few minutes i'll just start having a nosebleed <laughs> because yeah. it, it's i'm calling it now it's just going to be joe biden loses to donald trump that's it i i feel i fear and feel that too um and Let's every time yeah but then yeah because then at least you'll be sad but have money but also your odds would be terrible because loads of people think that's going to happen I should start it now when before the before the bookies get um more data and can adjust their odds. I bet right now it's probably probably not too bad. So Yeah. Yeah, so that that's a hot tip for the listeners. Put, put your <laughs> money tip. on that. Put your money and your sadness in that. There you go. Yeah. Just don't hope for the best cuz you know you know what's going to happen. It'll be Bernie will uh, poll really good. He'll be an obvious shoe in to win. Then the Democrats will do some sort of fuckery with the um whatever polling they do and there'll be super packs and there'll be changes to the rules at the last second or something joe biden will get in he'll lose badly because he's got no policies and he's creepy and 
and he's shit. Yeah, um, he's just bad at being a politician. Everyone every day will be talking about some terrible thing he said about black people or something, which is a lot. He's mm-hmm. he's very much one of those like pull your pants up and don't call your kids Tylenol kind of guys. He's just <laughs> yeah, no, he's awful, and he stands by a lot of his like awful, um, you know, voting record and uh, you know the the crime bill that did so much um, that that Clinton signed into law that did so much to drive racist sentencing racist policing mass incarceration he totally stands by it he's like yeah, yeah that was good that was good law um he is a te- i wish he had just stayed like like and and kind of just aged into and like become irrelevant through the like onion meme that has him yeah. as like creepy uncle joe like i wish that had been his like only relevant political legacy at this point yeah that was that was those were funny articles those were some of the onions best of the obama years right and, right. and yeah, now... he, that could have been his legacy, but he could have done a few, gone on the speaking circuit, got a few million here and there from Goldman Sachs or whoever. No one would cared. Everyone would just think of him as funny old Uncle Joe washing his Camaro in the White House lawn. Mm-hmm. No, he's he's going down as the guy who couldn't beat Trump, Trump again. Trump again. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah. So no. n- not. I'm I'm usually kind of envious of people who get to live in Brooklyn because, you know, it's Brooklyn, and it's Manchester, it but uh, I, I bet. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not envious of like the America you're surrounded with. That just sounds like even worse hell than this idiot country I'm in. Yeah, but, no, I don't know. They're difficult comparisons because I'm just like, oh god, imagine if I had to read about Brexit every day. But oh, yeah, um, that would, yeah, don't even don't, touch don't, Brexit. I, I can't recommend like it, just ignore Brexit. It's truly stupid and boring. Is it even worse? Like, at least the Trump stuff is interesting. Right, and at least, like, there's a kind of spectacle of presidential elections that, however ridiculous it is, at least there's this kind of narrative arc. Whereas Brexit, I'm like, wait, what What vote happened? Why? Who? Humpst? Um, so, yeah, I'm wildly ill-informed on the issue. Good. Stay that way. You're, you're doing yourself a big favour. Just ignore Brexit, semi-ignore the elections, uh, and... I don't know, get into gaming or something? I don't know what you could do with your spare time. No, unfortunately, <laughs> no, it's not me. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll start jogging. No, I'm completely kidding. Um, I'll just drink a lot and watch TV and cry. Oh, and then do some activism, obviously. Oh, oh yeah, you got to do that too. That's very that important. That too. Don't forget your activism, kids. Yeah. Um, That's part of your five a day. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, so people can find you on The Intercept. People can go to stores and verso.com to buy the book itself, um, yes. they cannot buy it through Amazon. I mean, yes, they, 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 I mean, they well, can, you, they but, can but they should should not. And yes. actually, it's like Verso has a really, really good, it'll get you fast, really good direct sales, and you can scan around and, you know, if you must, you can buy the Socialist Manifesto too, if you must. <laughs> um, but there's lots and lots of good books on mm-hmm. that site. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, I, and I'm on Twitter at my name, which is at Natasha Leonard. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, you are. Uh, so, to play us out for the for the show, um, a band I'm not going to subject Natasha to because you know, e- even though you're in Brooklyn, you're probably cool. Yeah, this is just too much for like 99 percent of the human race. <laughs> uh, a band called Full of Hell, out of Ocean City, Maryland. Uh, they've been around for a long time. They're 
kind of a big deal in the sounds like a flight of stairs falling down a flight of stairs genre and uh, their album came out a couple of years back uh, trumpeting ecstasy was kind of blew up big they got signed to a slightly bigger label than the small one they were on but still not like a major label because no major label would touch this it's just too harsh uh, they're incredible they've been doing, they've been touring they've been just really getting out there and being great um, and their new one is called weeping choir and i don't know what that means i don't need to know what that means it doesn't matter it's just one of these things like brexit i'm just going to ignore mm-hmm. and this is a song called angels gather here and um I'd say, like, get ready for it, but you can't get ready for it. It's just too heavy. So here's Full of Hell. up in heaven the beauty there was no decay they're laying their treasures up in heaven the beauty there was no decay 